Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Patrick M. Kohanek, MD, MCCM. Dr. Kohanek is a plenary speaker at the 46th Critical Care Congress in Honolulu, Hawaii, speaking on the brain and hypothermia from Aristotle to targeted temperature management. The good stuff keeps coming back. In addition, he also has the honor of being this year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner and is being honored by the society for his many accomplishments to the field. So, we have a lot to talk about today and I'm excited to have him with us. Welcome, Dr. Kohanek. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So, you have a long history in critical care and this year you were awarded the Society's Lifetime Achievement Award. Can you tell us a bit about your background and what inspired you to choose a career in pediatric critical care? Sure, that, that's, that's really a great question. Uh, I was a uh, medical student at the University of Chicago and uh, was actually inspired uh, to go into kind of a neuro direction by a, a very famous professor there, Peter Huttenlocker. Uh, and uh, he had, had some connections with the University of California, San Diego, as did the University of Chicago in pediatrics. The former chair there, uh, uh, Sam Spector, became a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago. And so I went to the University of Chicago think I, thinking I was going to go into pediatric neurology. And at, at uh, San Diego Children's, I went to, went to uh, San Diego Children's thinking I was going to go into pediatric neurology. And there, the, the acute care expertise was really quite impressive. Um, in neonatology, you had Lou Gluck, one of the fathers of neonatology, and he was running an amazing uh, uh, neonatal uh, translational research. They were doing preclinical research on surfactant and giving isolated human surfactant to babies. Uh, and this was in, you know, ni- you know 1980. Uh, and uh, it was really pretty wild. And then in the, in the critical care arena, you had Brad Peterson there, and Brad Peterson is still practicing as an, an, a pediatric attending at San Diego Children's. And I, to this day, have never met a more accomplished clinician than Brad Peterson. He was so far ahead of his time. Everyone uh, uh, having an interest in neuro, everyone had ICP monitoring. You could barely sneeze and not have an ICP monitor placed in his unit. And uh, everyone was in barb coma on hypothermia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was such an aggressive uh, kind of approach to neurocritical care. And of course, it was children. And as I always say, you know, guns blazing in children, you go all out. And and so it was very inspirational. And then there were a couple young intensivists at the university hospital, Nick Annis and Ron Perkins. And so Pediatric critical care was more of a, it was a pioneering venture then. Neonatology was already established, and it was like the Wild West. And I then was lucky enough to get a fellowship position at D.C. Children's in Peter Holbrook's program. And uh, that was just done at the last minute. I almost uh, didn't get a spot. And uh, when I went there to Peter Holbrook's program, Uh, they were really interested in sepsis and multiple organ failure and ARDS. They didn't have as much of a neurological focus, uh, but they had a big fellowship training program. 
Uh, for instance, there, Murray Pollock invented the PRISM score that's used to quantify severity of illness to this day in every patient. And, and, but in neuro, I was going around and I saw that half the patients that in San Diego had ICP monitors and were being treated with ICP-directed therapy, hypothermia, weren't getting that. And I went up to Peter Holbrook, the director of the ICU, and I said, what, what, what's the difference? Uh, you know, when you're a, a fellow, you think there's this standard of care that's being held across the the world, basically, or certainly the developed world. And And I was shocked. And I said, I want to answer this. And he said, well, I don't know that you can answer it. There just aren't enough patients to do a meaningful clinical study. In that era, there weren't any multi-center trials. Everything was single center. And I said, he said, go to the lab. And I said, okay, I'm ready. And I said, where? And he said, well, we don't have a lab. So I hunted out a uh, uh, John Hallenbeck at the National Naval Hospital, who was a preclinical investigator in stroke, and did a lot of research with him. And that kind of launched me in an era of neurocritical care. And then ultimately, I was hired in 1986 for my first faculty position uh, by Ann Thompson and Peter Saffer, kind of the father of modern-day resuscitation and neuro-resuscitation in Pittsburgh and have never left. Quite a tale. <laughs> quite a tale, quite a tale. Uh, you gave a presentation during this Congress on targeted temperature management, partly titled, The Good Stuff Keeps Coming Back. Can you expand on what, what you mean by this and give us some of the take-home points? Yeah, that's really a great question, and I didn't even have enough time in my talk to address some of the some of the points on this that uh, I was trying to address. Uh, take something like hypothermia. I was mentioning steroids and septic shock, uh, fluid management. All of these, if you want to call them building blocks, the you know the basics, the elemental uh, interventions in critical care go through these eras, and they keep coming back because they do have effects. And I, I say that you refine them, you, you re-implement them in a better way on a different platform because the platform of patient management has changed. And it's just like, well, well now in, in sepsis, people are looking at genetic predisposition and Hector Wong has shown in children, for instance, that certain genetic profiles are associated with mortality uh, if you give them steroids. And you can see that's where it's going. And traumatic brain injury, well, a certain phenotype, large contusions might need surgery right away, or, uh, but a patient with uh, diffuse axonal injury might need a totally different uh, treatment regimen. And, and, and so... So the, we're, we're looking at the diseases in a much more sophisticated way now, and yet these same therapies, you know, who should or shouldn't get steroids, who should or shouldn't get uh, an aggressive resuscitation versus a more cautious fluid resuscitation, et cetera, those, seem, those same questions keep coming back. And so those are the good things, I think. I think they are our tools and uh, with hypothermia in particular, it's gone through these just wild swings. Uh, I remember when I was a resident uh, that I, I can remember a patient in hypothermia for like 14 days. Um, I can remember a patient with severe head injury uh, 
that was, in that era, we dried everyone out. We sat them up so that, you know, there's the maximal CSF drainage. And as you can imagine, you're super bone dry and you're sitting up. I mean, I, mean, I guess perfusion was kind of second thought. But, but in using hypothermia and seeing lower lobe abscesses develop with hypothermia to levels of 30 degrees, 29 degrees for a week. Wow. And, and so when I look at hypothermia now and see targeted temperature management, one degree, two degrees, titrating, preventing fevers and these kind of things, I look back and say, you know, we really have learned a lot. We have a ton more to learn, but we've, we've learned. And, and I, I was uh, talking to you earlier in the day, kind of related to this in my mind, one of the things that we don't often talk about in critical care is, in, I really believe that the best critical care is with a lot of therapies in small doses. I think where people get into trouble in, in our field is becoming almost zealots for a certain strategy. And, uh, and you, you believe in it so much, you take it to toxicity. And I, I always call it, pour it like you don't own it. And uh, it, you think of it as critical care, and it is like the Wild West. But I, in my mind, what really has the best chance to win is, is small in, uh, eloquats of multiple therapies to minimize the toxicity and get maybe not the maximal benefit, but some benefit for no price. Uh, so I think the good stuff does it constantly come back, and it's it's good that it does. I guess I would say. I think you hit the nail on its head right now. This is this is exactly what I think too. I think critical care is all about little bits of this and that, and the end goal I think is making sure our patients do better through their critical illness. Yeah, I would also say related to that that. We have done a pretty darn good job over the years in our field of figuring out what's bad. I always talk about kindler, gentler ventilation we have now compared to when I was a resident and a fellow. I mean, if I didn't get normal blood gases on a, on a premature infant when I was a medical student and in the neonatal unit, normal blood gases, and... Uh, then that would be malpractice. Um, how, how could you consider tolerating a SAT of 85 or something like that? I mean, it, it would just, you, you would have been thrown out of the program. And so I think we've learned in many ways the, the uh, you know, what hurts our patients. And many of the successful trials have actually been trials that have eliminated a strategy we thought that was good, but because it has toxicity, it, it, it failed compared to, to uh, other care. And uh, what the bigger challenge for us, though, in moving forward is figuring out now on our baseline, good care, how do we improve upon that? And that's a much, much more difficult challenge. Interesting. So I have one question for you. Um, so when I did my training not too far ago, and I think I just spoke about you, spoke about this a little bit um, ago, I would start, you know, making sure that you don't use Tylenol or paracetamol, depending on which part of the world you come from, in patients who have, you know, low-grade fevers, 39 is when you usually start treating fevers. What's your take on that? Well, I think in neurocritical care, uh, the, the 
preclinical data are overwhelming that hyperthermia at any level is detrimental to the injured brain. Obviously, not to the normal brain, but to the injured brain. There are a lot, of, and, and maybe to the injured brain at certain times after the injury. I don't think we've quite understand how long it's vulnerable for. Some of the preclinical studies suggest something like five days or so, uh, maybe out to a week, but then that vulnerability to, to hyperthermia starts to wane. In the first day or so, there's clear vulnerability in the preclinical studies. And so I think that um, this idea of clamping a patient at either controlled normal thermia or targeted temperature management where you clamp at, say, 36 so that you never become hyperthermic. If you go up a little bit, you know, the wobble that you normally see could be 36 to 37 or 37.5 and 35.5 to 37, something, something like that. So that way you've, you've locked in. Uh, some of the challenges that come in, obviously, are not all brain-injured patients are comatose. It's much easier to do if you're comatose, and it's, you know, it's, it's even further e easier to, to do if you're poikilothermic, uh, like, say, after a significant cardiac arrest or you have brainstem malfunction or whatever, a thalamic and hypothalamic malfunction. So, so the duration, et cetera, some of these things aren't clear, but I think it's pretty clear that in the relatively acute phase, you can hurt the brain with hyperthermia. And, well, you could say, well, a lot of that's preclinical evidence. What about man? And the studies in adult neurocritical care are basically associations. Fever after a stroke or TBI are associated with bad outcome. The place that that has been the most meticulously proven is in neonatology, where temperature regulation of infants has been the standard of care forever. I mean, that's, and it's kind of ironic that many years ago when I was a resident, for instance, Thinking of using hypothermia in a neonate was, was heresy. You wouldn't even consider it. It was like you want to warm the newborn. But the uh, important NIH-funded uh, studies uh, over the years in neonatal asphyxia have very clearly shown that even one degree of hyperthermia after the resuscitation phase, highly associated with unfavorable outcome. And, and each degree higher is associated with worse and worse and worse outcome. And if you're interested in that, there was a paper by Laptuk uh, in the journal Pediatrics uh, probably a decade ago or so that is, is really the, the, the hallmark paper on that. So uh, I do think that this idea of preventing fever, uh, you know, by the time you respond to it, it's been there a while. Uh, exactly how long you need to have fever to be bad is a good question. I think that hasn't been completely answered. Recently, there was a very interesting paper in a preclinical studies out of the University of Miami, and that's been a very important group for brain injury and temperature control. And uh, they actually showed that you can give an animal a concussion and that's below the threshold of producing any histological brain damage. But then if shortly after the concussion, you actually raise the temperature to, say, 38 or 39 degrees for a, an hour or something like that, and then allow it to uh, come back down, and, and then look a week later, 
there's overt histological damage to the brain with a concussion that never produced any damage, or there's long-term behavioral cognitive outcome uh, deficits in the animals. And this has really opened everyone's eyes beyond neurocritical care, because when you think about it, all of the high school kids playing on the football field in the summer when it's blazing hot and they're getting maybe some of them repeated mild concussions, you wonder why the chronic traumatic encephalopathy that has been seen is almost always limited to elite athletes or uh, service people in the military who are exposed to these multiple concussions, and many of them in either in theater or in uh, football practice, et cetera, that are, is, that are hyperthermic environments. So this study now is an example that even outside of critical care, that's opened everyone's eyes and says, wow, even a little hyperthermia at the time of even a mild brain injury can push it to to uh, to more damage. So I, I think it's a I think it's uh, a very important topic. Uh, I, one other thing I would say about it is that it, we all have to recognize that in neurocritical care, patients, as I mentioned, aren't all comatose, and there's a trade-off to clamping the temperature on someone you know, even one degree below normal because you have shivering and you have, you, uh, the classic study on this is by Cliff Calloway uh, who uh, took normal human volunteers recently published a few years ago and, and sedated them and was cooling them and they were doing the study to look at how does hypo, mild hypothermia affect drug metabolism in the human so they gave a little cocktail of, of probe drugs of the different cytochrome P450s but what they learned from the study also is damn, it's hard to cool a normal person. They really fight it, and they don't like it. And even one degree is very uncomfortable, and you don't realize that one degree is, uh, is, is pretty uncomfortable. And uh, our, our recent studies that we've published on taking neurons in culture and clamping them one degree, they can tell. A neuron knows when it's one degree cooler. So clinically, you have the conundrum of, that and so there may be a trade-off: the drugs, the risk of aspiration, the uh, you know uh, maybe you need to intubate the patient or whatever, et cetera. And and those are all trade-offs that 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 make it a little bit more challenging. But I think in the setting of a comatose patient in the acute period, uh, it really makes sense to to prevent rather than wait for and react to uh, hyperthermia. Totally, totally. I t- totally agree with you. Moving on, another question for you. Um, you're the editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Uh, what is that job like? And what have you learned from the sheer volume of research that's out there, the articles that you come across? Uh, it's really cool. I've been the editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine for 17 years, and I will be for another five and uh, uh, I think that uh, it has been an amazing thing to do. I've gotten a lot of help from a lot of people. I have an, a remarkable international editorial board. Um, and I, I think that uh, I was very fortunate. The journal has been extremely successful. And uh, like I say, not, not so much to anything that I've done, but the, but the amazing groundswell of support uh, from the world. Uh, the SCCM, for instance, uh, which has published critical care for, for decades, 
17 years ago or 18 years ago, uh, was really wise in partnering with the World Federation to put this journal out. And I'm always grateful to them for that because it allowed us to unify the field. And uh, uh, the editorial board has exactly half international, half U.S., and it always has. And uh, I have associate editors all over the globe. And so I really think that the, the field was really ready for it. We were really ready for it. A lot of the other specialties had a subspecialty journals five or ten, ten years before we did. Pediatric infectious disease has had a journal for, for, I don't know what year they started, but could be in the 1920s or 30s, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and so it was downhill because it was just like a snowball ready to go. And I think the Society of Critical Care Medicine was a little worried at the time that, that the, the, the essence of critical care is its multidisciplinary nature. And if you create a pediatric journal, are you going to then need a surgical critical care journal? Uh, and all of a sudden now the, the unity that it is and the importance of that in, in delivering quality multidisciplinary care uh, and multi-professional care could be eroded. But I think pediatrics was a different entity that in no way the journal, in, no, in, in, in fact, the journal strengthened that. And it strengthened it in other ways, too. I, if you look at pediatric critical care, probably the most highly cited journal in pediatric critical care is critical care. So it's been a win-win in, in, in many ways. So I, I, I think it's, it's really, it was just ready to rumble, as I would say. And, uh, and it, I think the thing that has, uh, that if I deserve any credit, it's for inclusivity and it's for fairness. And uh, I think we have a good reputation. And now the acceptance rate, for instance, last year for pediatric critical care was 19% for an article. And so I think fairness is really important. If you could accept half the articles, then, you know, you, you don't have to be as, as cautious, uh, really high selectivity and really looking at all of the issues so carefully. Uh, but with a 19% acceptance rate, uh, that, that's, I think, a really important factor. So the journal is, is great, and uh, the, uh, I, think, I think it's viewed by the, by the pediatric community uh, really favorably. Okay. A Lifetime Achievement Award causes one to reflect on your career. What excites you the most about what you see as the future of critical care medicine? Uh, well, I think that uh, probably two things. Uh, the one thing that excites me in the future is the same thing that's excited me all along, and that is the trainees. Uh, I have had so many trainees go on to careers of national prominence, and, uh, and I always say that you need to have a carousel with both clinical and basic or preclinical uh, investigators, programs, going round and round so the trainees can jump on and jump off. And, uh, and that was a concept that I didn't think of. Dick Traitsman at uh, Johns Hopkins many, many years ago always talked about that, and he was utterly right, especially in a specialty like critical care where you know, you're, you're on service one week or a few days and then you're out. You need, you need a stable academic machine. 
And in whatever your discipline is, whether it's simulation or whether it's you know, basic science research or whether it's uh, clinical trials or whatever, you need that machine and, and the infrastructure and you need to build it. And so to me, the fellows and the, and the junior faculty are, are what keep me young and inspire me. And uh, you need to be able to attract good ones, get them launched, give them rope, because they're smarter than you. They know the newest. They know the latest. You know the infrastructure on which they have to make their discoveries, but they're the ones that have the discoveries, and they're pulling the rabbit out of the hat, I guess I would say. And I have been so impressed by that. My presentation my uh, today was one trainee. And it's a really cool story. He, he, um, we have both MDs and PhDs, and he's a PhD, but he's really interested in translational uh, medicine. His name is Travis Jackson, and he came. We have a weekly journal club, a neurocritical care journal club. It can have a New England Journal article, or it could have a, a journal of neuroscience. I mean, it is really broad in scope. If it's interesting in, in acute brain injury, we're interested in it. And we presented that day the targeted temperature management. This was a few years ago, paper, uh, you know, from the uh, Scandinavian trial that showed that that clamping at 36 was pretty similar in outcome, uh, within two percent of overall uh, primary outcome, to uh, uh, not statistically different than hypothermia. And he came up to me after journal club, and he's a preclinical investigator. He says, "Anyone ever taken neurons and clamped them at?" 36 degrees. What happens to them? Do they sense it? What do they do? Whatever. And he did, and he showed that they induce a very powerful neuroprotective protein at just one degree of hypothermia. But they do it only if they're immature neurons. And we know now from the clinical trials that immature patients do much better, the infants, with hypothermia than the adults. And yeah, there could be other reasons for it. But even at the fundamental neuro, uh, le neuron level, that holds. And so get these young people with great ideas. I have Rachel Berger. Rachel Berger walked into my office. She was a, uh, a fellow in... Uh, General Pediatrics uh, Studying Child Abuse pr Prevention and Management. And she said, and this was 20 years ago, God, you guys have been using CSF biomarkers to study the evolution of brain injury. We had a big bank of CSF, uh, an NIH-funded project looking at uh, a program project in head injury we had for 17 years, many years ago. And we were studying CSF from all of our severe head injured kids and, 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 and brain tissue samples if they went to decompressive surgery and producing some really, I think, important uh, findings that have uh, held the test of time. And she walked in and said, do you think I could use blood and measure biomarkers of brain injury to pick up missed child abuse victims? Uh, because there, a lot of them are missed in emergency rooms. And, and lo and behold, I said, well, I don't know. You know, there's the blood-brain barrier. I don't think this is going to work. But go ahead and give it a try. So give them some rope. Rachel Berger last year was on President Obama's Commission for Child Abuse. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, and I can I could give you 20 stories like that. So it's the young trainees that come in that are really exciting. And I think the other thing I mentioned, there were two things that is really exciting to me, is the, uh, the fact that uh, we really are figuring out that 
you know, how to better take a shot at a clinical trial. I mean, we're seeing uh, these adaptive designs and, and comparative effectiveness trials. Mike Bell and our group uh, just completed the ADAPT trial in children, entered 1,000 kids in 40 or 50, 46 or 50 sites uh, with severe traumatic brain injury, and looking at how differently they are managed, even though there's a guidelines, how differently they are managed. And you know, those kind of studies, as I mentioned when I talked to Peter Holbrook in 1983, he said, we, we, there aren't enough patients in any single place to do that. There just aren't. And so we've come up with an answer to that. And I think we're really at a great position now that we're going to learn how to optimize background care just a little better instead of just how to do things, prevent doing bad things, maybe come up with a, a good recipe for background care and neurocritical care and other uh, diseases. And, and then with some of these new trial designs, uh, target engagement biomarkers, uh, adaptive design, uh, uh, endotyping, genotyping, that we're going to uh, identify uh, the right groups of patients to deliver the therapy. Peter Saffer used to always say that the way clinical trials are done, and this was, you know, uh, uh, he passed away in 2004, so this was before that, and I worked with him for almost 10 years. Uh, he used to say that critical tri clinical trials in critical care are, are done, stu they're stupid. They're just, they make no sense because we titrate care at the bedside. We don't just randomize people huge groups to one therapy versus another. He said, if, in coming out of anesthesia, if you were an anesthesiologist, you'd never do a case like that. Things are evolving during the case, and you, 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 you make all these titration moves. And unless it's something like what the background anesthesia is, for one thing, but for many of the physiology-based moves that we make, that kind of strategy has no physiological basis in the approach, is what he used to always say. And I think that in the ICU, that's really an important thing. And I think finally, we're coming around to, to really much more carefully, at least identifying patient groups rather than the whole disease. And with the right trial design now, I think now we have a chance to take the bigger step of, of improving our, our care and getting some positive trials. Great. I think that is um, a huge insight into critical care medicine in general. So I think, uh, you know, and I must say that you have your mentees are, are phenomenal to have a mentor like you who can, you know, pick up, pick out people and tell them, hey, this is the direction to go and help them achieve what they want to achieve. So I think that's uh, phenomenal right there. So thank you, Dr. Kohanek, for being here and uh, volunteering your time for this interview. This concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Deshpande. Thank you. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education.
Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.